Today, I'm speaking with Brian Murrescu. Brian is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Immortality Key. This episode is very strange, so I gotta warn you guys right off the bat, but I found it incredibly interesting. Brian has been called groundbreaking for his book as he writes about the potential role psychedelics have played in the origins of religion. Brian's hypothesis outlines that a fungus called ergot was infused into beer and wine that created psychedelic experiences. These experiences were possibly covered up by the church. We just scratched the surface. Brian has been working on this book for over 12 years. So if you're interested in this idea, get the book, get the audio. A podcast will not do this justice. Finally, to thank you for checking out the new show, I'm giving away a PlayStation 5. All you have to do is like and subscribe to enter. Details in the comments. Now, please welcome Brian Murrescu to the Welcome Home podcast. It's my 12-year search through some of the most iconic libraries and archives and museums and archaeological sites of the old world, trying to figure out whether this 1978 theory had any weight to it, hard scientific weight. Um, And the two big questions I asked, the book is divided into two parts. I asked, number one, were the ancient Greeks using drugs to find God? psychedelic specifically. And number two, did some of that tradition make its way into the earliest Christian communities, many of whom were Greek speaking, by the way. So the New Testament is written in Greek. Paul writes his letters, almost half of the New Testament, to Greek speakers in different parts of the Greek speaking Mediterranean. So the the long and short of it is this pagan continuity hypothesis. Do all these crazy psychedelic pagan rituals from before Jesus make their way into the time of Jesus, uh, which, you know, is something that even Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was writing about in 1950. This was not that crazy of an idea. It's been around a long time. That itself goes back to the late 19th century. I mean, so you and I keep pushing the the timescale back on when this all starts. But uh, these ideas have been out there for a long time and largely just kind of, you know, wrapped up in in academia. I mean, unless you know Latin and Greek and really nerd out in this stuff, it's hard to communicate these ideas outside the academy. So if anything, my book was the attempt to kind of wrap up all these riddles and present them for, you know, the average person who may not be an an expert in philology or archaeochemistry or biblical studies. Logistically speaking, you are a lawyer. You've been working on this book for over a decade. Is this a weekend evening project? Did you ever have hopes that it would be a best-selling book? Uh, that's, that's a good one. Um, to be totally honest, I was just doing what I loved. And I, I, I mean that honestly, which is why it took 12 years. And I mentioned the birth of my daughters in between there, which is what really brought me bliss, just raising them. And, you know, when I was putting them to sleep, I'd always be reading something or listening to a podcast. And I, I was just doing what I loved, which is reading and, and researching. And it's, it's you know, it's the, the skill that I learned from my mother when I was a boy, and I learned from the Jesuits when I was a teenager, and I got to go to Brown on a scholarship to keep studying this stuff, which had no practical value until I went to law school and, and did this whole left turn. But I mean, even though I've been, I've been practicing law, I mean, I never left like the humanities behind. And so for me, like, no, I honestly wasn't thinking about even publishing, let alone being a bestseller. I mean, I was just collecting notes for my own genuine interest. And I would, you know, I would talk to my friends about it and most of them would ignore me. And I'd talk to lawyers about it and even more would ignore me. And eventually, you know, one or two clues came together like in the, the last five years that, that got me to thinking, I mean, maybe there's something worth presenting here, right? And that, that's when I started shopping the book and started taking it more seriously. But, you know, for the first 
geez, like 10 years, it was just me following what Joseph Campbell said to do, which is follow your bliss, man, what you're doing right now. I guess there's two different scenarios I wanted to ask you about from that. At what point do you realize, wow, we have something here that people really care about, where you felt the genuine momentum of culture caring about your work? And on the flip side, was there ever a moment where you were seriously considering giving up this project during that 12-year period? Um, I still consider giving it up. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> you question, and you're not, you're not being honest. If, if you're not questioning yourself every single day, you're just, you're not being honest. Um, and for the longest time, no, I didn't find any smoking guns. But I mean, there were a few moments along the way. The big one, I think, was in 2016 when Hopkins and NYU released this joint study on the use of psilocybin uh, specifically for end-of-life distress in uh, patients who've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I think the results were released at the end of 2016. And, and at that point, this is now like the 10th year of Hopkins publishing similar material, again, about people having mystical-like experiences under the influence of psilocybin. Um, and there was this article in the New York Times where some of these volunteers were talking about their experience. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, this is, you know, this, what they're saying is identical to what little testimonies survive from the ancient world. These, this, this beatific vision that somehow has you confronting your death and, and you know, the sense of self and the ego is dissolving. Um, we don't have that many specifics from antiquity, but, but those who do talk about their initiation into these traditions use language that, that's very similar, the kind of language you find in the mystical literature over time. And when that, when that was published and I realized that Hopkins and NYU were truly onto something, it wasn't too long after that some of these, you know, smoking guns of sorts started to emerge from the journals and the record. And that, that's when I figured that there was something here worth presenting. There's a lot of authors that have popular books and there's a lot of people that talk on popular podcasts, but there are very few that have a best-selling book that have viral podcasts with the biggest podcasters on earth. Do you ever wonder why the mainstream is so interested and so passionate about this? Do you ever wonder why the masses seem to have been triggered in a way to say, wow, this is really interesting? I have no idea. <laughs> um, uh, I'll, I'll use that argument when I'm pitching my next book, though. Um, I, I mean, I've, it's just, I th it's, it's, it's weird. Again, I'm just, I'm just following what interests me. And I mean, how can you predict that the potential answer to the best kept secret in history? Uh, that's what Houston Smith called this search for the grail, right? The, the idea of the best kept secret in history. I mean, how can you predict that the potential answer to that in psychedelics is the same thing that is now ramping up towards FDA approval and um, capturing attention from Silicon Valley to Wall Street, uh, to the pharmaceutical industry, uh, to Washington, D.C., and everything in between is kind of converging on psychedelics. I, if, if I had to point to one thing, it's because it's not about psychedelics, as, as weird as that may sound. And you asked me the question earlier, uh, what is the key, like the immortality key? I call it that because I see psychedelics as just one tool in a larger spiritual toolkit for essentially annihilating yourself. Um, and this is, this is a practice um, of near death, this, these near death experiences that have been cultivated forever in antiquity. And most of my book is about that, as, as the, the fact of psychedelics seeming to incubate these experiences that have been reported since time immemorial, this concept of dying before you die. 
So like psychedelics are really just a tool, I think, to analyze uh, human consciousness, right? And at the same time, you're, you're digging way back into the human past. But if anything, my book is asking questions about the future. Uh, the, I mean, the mental health care revolution, for example, that's upon us now and will only increase over the next five years. I mean, things like anxiety, depression, addiction, PTSD are about to get a, a heaping load of, of new tools for addressing them in a really robust way. But beyond that, I mean, religion is up for grabs and what, you know, how we organize ourselves as a, as a democracy is up for grabs. If in fact the ancient Greeks were doing psychedelics and having visions of goddesses, it's something we should think about today. And so it's all kind of converging right now. And again, I mean, I, I think we're just, we're living through a moment and you throw some COVID on top of it and you know, people are looking for meaning. We're all confronting death at the, at the exact same time. If in a hypothetical parallel universe, your publisher emails you and says, hey, Brian, for the new edition, you could only put one story or one piece of evidence. If you, uh, the 12 years that you've put together this incredible project, if you could only present one compelling piece of evidence or one compelling story for why your theory and this theory is correct, uh, how would you present that? <laughs> I get one shot. That's it. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the one, again, the one, the one that convinced me that there was a there there was this ergotized beer from Spain. So we, we, we mentioned this controversial book from 1978. I mean, so, so what Wasson, Hoffman and Ruck proposed specifically was that the ancient Greeks were drinking something like an LSD type beer um, in, in this really famous initiation ceremony as part of the mysteries of Eleusis, which was like the spiritual capital of the ancient world. I mean, it, it initiated everybody from Plato to Marcus Aurelius. I mean, it was the Vatican of the ancient world for the Greeks. Um, and, you know, again, for the longest time, there was no data, but in 1978, they were convinced that, uh, that ergot, this natural fungus where we get LSD, somehow made its way into this concoction that somehow made its way into the, the guts of all these initiates uh, for, for 2000 years, which is, again, a, very, a really bold idea, but also very elegant because this fungus ergot has this ancient relationship with the grains. So it pops up on rye, but you'll also find it on barley and other grains, which we know we've been cultivating for 12, 13,000 years. And so the idea being, if the Greeks were doing this, they got it from somewhere. And maybe someone before them figured out some way to mix up this, this fungus ergot into beer, which again, we know has been around for 12, 13,000 years. Beer is really freaking old. Um, so all very elegant. And, you know, I had nowhere to go with that until I realized there was some data. And it took years and years of reading through stacks of archaeobotany journals like that and sitting down in the Library of Congress until I found this uh, monograph from 20 years ago of this archaeologist in Spain who actually found part of the smoking gun in the 1990s and for some reason published her finding in Catalan, which is this romance language not widely spoken, um, certainly not in academic communities, but, but there it was in this ancient Greek sanctuary, she says, dedicated to the mysteries of Demeter and Persephone, exactly like you found over in Greece, uh, they found this miniature chalice this big and tested it and it tested positive for beer and ergot. And it's the very first hard scientific data I've ever seen 
to support this crazy idea from 1978, which raises even bigger questions. But I mean, at least at least you have something. I mean, there, there's there's there, there's something we can actually look at to substantiate this crazy idea. Do you think the ergot beer started completely unintentional? That the fungus grew and this happened. Then they tried to cultivate it. Was the first experience completely random? Probably, uh, and and I'm not sure it was twelve or thirteen thousand years ago. Maybe it was far older than that. I don't I don't know. Um, if if you follow even crazier ideas, which I'm hunting down now, like the stoned ape theory, uh, maybe archaic hominids were experimenting with mind altering fungi hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years ago. I mean, so th these are big, big questions. I don't think this story starts twelve thousand, thirteen thousand years ago. I think when you look at the consumption of psychoactive drugs outside our species in the animal kingdom, this is an old, old story. Um, and so I kind of artificially pick this up. Again, um, when um, we're, we're going from hunting and gathering to agriculture, just because it's, it's a nice pivot point. Um, but at some point it was, yeah, it was probably accidental. And then, you know, and, and I think that that accident becomes design. And I think we have to confront the fact that's emerging, which is our ancient ancestors, our prehistoric ancestors seem to know a lot about the landscape. I mean, there were no drugstores around. I mean, so they looked to the natural world to heal them. Uh, they sometimes would look to it to harm others and occasionally to find transcendence. And so if they indeed found this formula for ergotized beer, uh, which is a really volatile thing, by the way, not easy to do, not easy to isolate just the right alkaloid for that. You're, you're talking about really deep pharmacological expertise. And I think that, that that's the big idea that we're following up on now. Earlier, we spoke about hopes for the future and timing of this research. It's very interesting because typically I'll speak to a guest and after some research, I'll have a question. Then I'll usually come to a conclusion. In your case and with your book, every question, every thread that gets pulled almost leads to two new questions. <laughs> and then you have a new question, then there's two new questions. Ed, do you ever think that you've just scratched the surface on this, that this is just a spark of your your actual discography of the books you hope to write? Uh, yeah, welcome to my life, man. Every time you think you, you, you've cornered something, uh, you open a new, a new Pandora's box. Um, and again, partly why this took me 12 years, because along the way, I mean, there were lots of labyrinthine tunnels and rabbit holes I, I was going down, which I haven't published and, and don't even talk about in public. Um, but, but lots of weird things happen along this path. Um, so... We're getting to a point now where there's there's good academic support, and we'll be talking more publicly about this even later this month, actually. Um, so you know we're we're getting wonderful um, ideas from faculty at different universities, and from people who want to put funding and attention into this kind of research. So so now, even though we've only scratched the surface, you know there are all these grails and all these containers and all these chalices in the old world just waiting to be tested. And they've never been tested, just because. I don't know, because of um, a general bias against the idea or the lack of the hard data. But, but now that we have what I call these archaeochemical blips on the radar, I think this, this hypothesis, and that's what it is, it's a hypothesis. You either find more data or you don't find more data. You test this stuff. And so now we have an opportunity to keep testing this stuff. And so I think it's going to balloon into lots of questions over the next few years. When, when I was thinking about why there isn't a direct 
recounting in ancient literature why we don't have a direct this is where we were this is what we did this is why we did it here's the recipe is that just hey all ancient literature like 99% of it is lost or do you ever think like maybe there was a bit of a cover up maybe there were certain powers that didn't want recipes leaking or these re- recountments uh being found do you think there's an element of cover up or just we just don't have a lot of ancient literature to draw on in general. Wow, that's a great one. Um, it's it's definitely a mix of both. You mentioned, and that's an accurate figure that I include in the book. I mean, you know, all, of all the literature that was produced in antiquity, only about 1% has survived to today, which raises big questions. Is it because of just general generational loss of knowledge and the fact that um, a lot of these manuscripts went missing? Did the church have a hand? In, in, in some of this, I mean, certainly they did, they can't be blamed for all of it, but you know, what you're talking about is this, this movement in the fourth century AD, when the Christianized Roman Empire begins to replace all these pagan traditions. Now, what I'll say that is, I mean, a lot of those traditions were oral traditions, when we're talking about these mystery cults, right? Um, and, and even like within early Christianity, which had certain elements of mystery cults to it. I mean, you know, secret meetings, um, uh, crazy sacraments. I mean, there's a reason that Christianity itself was illegal under the Roman Empire for a couple hundred years, because it had a lot of things in common, at least to the outside perspective, as some of these pagan mystery initiations, the, the, these occult happenings behind closed doors. Um, and when you have a situation like that, of course, you're going to lose knowledge. I mean, they didn't write it down. They didn't, you know, it was, it was forbidden to talk about your experience at Eleusis. Um, and we don't have a lot of material from like the mysteries of Dionysus, the Greek god of wine and ecstasy and madness and maybe psychedelics. Um, they, they didn't write this stuff down. And so, of course, you're going to lose that on top of the loss of 99% of recorded literature. Um, so, I mean, I still don't know where, where I fall on the spectrum of uh, accident versus conspiracy. But the, the, the fact is that we, we lost a lot of this stuff, um, which, which, which begs, again, even more big questions. Um, and I, I had this conversation recently, um, actually last week with Charlie Stang at Harvard Divinity School. We did this very public facing Zoom and, and he called me out on the fact that, you know, the early church fathers were looking for any opportunity um, to, uh, to damn these heretical pagan like Christians. And, you know, they don't talk about their formulas and their recipes and their psychedelics. And I said, well, they do. There are a few instances of the church fathers literally using the word pharmaca and drugs to describe these other sacraments. But at the same time, yes, they weren't botanists and they weren't chemists. And so uh, we don't have a lot of detail from the church fathers over why this kind of stuff was suppressed. But, you know, again, it raises really fun avenues of research for the next archive trip. When you're researching your book, you're going to the Vatican, you're trying to run these tests. Are you welcomed with open arms? Is it, if you're doing this respectfully, check out the archives? Or was it uh, a bit of pushback and almost challenging to get into the Vatican and other rooms? Um, the, the challenge would have been the same challenge facing anybody going through any bureaucracy. And the Vatican has its bureaucracy like anywhere else. I mean, it, it took me a significant amount of time to make those appointments in the Vatican secret archives and the archives of the Inquisition. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I got to talking with these librarians and these archivists and they were pretty intrigued by this. And for them, you know, this is ancient history and I'm not the first person to come into the archives 
um, digging around. I mean, there, there are lots of historians, Carlo Ginsberg among them, who writes a lot about witchcraft, um, uh, people who write about the Templars and the church's role uh, in the suppression of, of the Templars. I mean, there all these books have been written and, you know, historians are welcome into the archives for that reason. I mean, which I think says a lot, by the way, about the Vatican opening its doors to people like me and other historians and researchers, because this is ancient history um, and or medieval history. And, and, I, and I think there, there's something to be said for a bit of truth and reconciliation over, you know, the role of drugs in the history of the church. And the, the, the bigger question is, what does it mean for today? I mean, like you said at the very beginning, this is not an anti-ecclesiastical book. I'm just asking open questions about the role of drugs throughout the history, um, why they were suppressed, if that's the case. And what do we do about it now? I mean, the current, you know, papal administration has nothing to do with a decision by the church fathers or by medieval popes about you know, the relationship with women and drugs. So um, all the archivists seem pretty intrigued by this stuff. For those that are going to read your book and listen to the audio, I feel like everyone's gonna have a different moment that strikes them for a different reason. And for me, in a bizarre way, we mentioned some of the most famous Stoics earlier. And I'm a fan of Ryan Holiday, and I, I've read Meditations, and I'm a fan of the idea of Stoicism because you think of the Stoics saying, no ego, it, it, it isn't about, we aren't gods. But as I'm listening to you speak and I'm hearing these things, is it accurate to say that there's almost a contradiction in the way I thought of Stoics because they wanted to become gods through these psychedelic experiences? Is that accurate and do you see the kind of bizarre contradiction on what i expect from famous stoics versus what they actually did yeah i, I think it's i think it's a it's a contradiction that that you find again the, the minute you look into what ancient greece was about and what motivated the ancient athenians and romans it was you know there was an irrational aspect to all this as a matter of fact one, one of my favorite lines from the road to eleusis this 1978 book that i think that carl ruck writes himself and he's always surprised when I quote this back to him. But he said that, you know, they, they, they amassed all this data, right, from, from the literature and the archaeological record. And even, it's funny how he prophesied this 42 years ago. Uh, he said that, you know, his biggest challenge, their biggest challenge in trying to gain acceptance for this hypothesis would be trying to convince the academy that um, the ancient Greeks and Romans, indeed, some of the best and brightest among them, would have entered fully into such states of irrationality. You know, the idea that um, when we think about like the founding fathers who themselves were obsessed with the classics and the Greeks and Romans, I mean, we think about these sober, rational, enlightenment era thinkers. And, you know, there, there's, there's the seeds of irrationality behind all this stuff. And Nietzsche writes a lot about this. Um, this is what Dionysus stands for, if anything, which is the release of the, the primal self, right? That motivates all of us. So the sex, drugs and rock and roll that, you know, was born in the 60s, but goes back, you know, all the way to antiquity, I think. Uh, there, there's a story there about the need to embrace the irrational, to investigate the irrational, and again, even aside from psychedelics, to enter into these contemplative, meditative states of mind that were practiced by the ancient Greeks in, in fits of incubation, like literally in these subterranean chambers. I mean, they were doing all kinds of things to, to alter consciousness and to, to enter into states of non-rational consciousness, right? And, and for them, 
if you ask Plato, like what philosophy was, he would say that it's nothing else but dying and being dead. The study of death is what philosophy was to them. I mean, that, that's not a rational event. It has nothing to do with books and learning and universities. It has everything to do with exploring the shadowy aspects of the self, which we don't often think about when we talk about the ancient Greeks, but the record's certainly there. And nobody writes better about this uh, than Peter Kingsley, by the way. So big shout out to everything Peter Kingsley writes, because uh, I think the answers are right there. The Stoics, when you read meditations or you, you research the Stoics, they were almost obsessed with death in a very strange way. All they did was talk about death, keep death top of mind. Now, after I've seen your work, are they talking about an ego death? Have the thought of your ego being silenced as much as possible? Or was it literally talking about death because your work has now contradicted a lot of my readings in Stoicism where, well, what were they exactly talking about? Was it ego death? Was it silencing ego? Or was it literal death? Um, can, can you speak maybe on the, their obsession with death and what you think the Stoics meant by it? Right. I mean, so different Stoics write about it differently. Um, but again, in reviewing Peter Kingsley's work on this topic, it, it's hard for me not to not to envision the ego like death, because again, in, in, it's not just in these mystery traditions, like the mysteries of Eleusis or the mysteries of Dionysus, but in, in these practices of incubation and these meditative techniques and, you know, going off grid to enter into these non-ordinary states, what they're really trying to cultivate um, the Stoics and the pre-Socratics before them, I think what, the, what they're trying to cultivate is what today we would call the ego death. And they didn't put it in that term, uh, but they were, they were certainly exploring the contours of consciousness and trying to arrive at, at, at a state of mind that was not quite being awake, but not quite being asleep, not quite being alive, but not quite being dead. So I don't think it was literal or physical death that was the memento mori, right? Just the having the, the concept of death constantly on your mind. I think that they were trying to, to keep alive the state of consciousness where uh, the cosmos collapses, is the best way I can put it, into the here and now, um, where it's not even so much about ego death, but just about dissolution or emptiness in general. And this concept of nothingness pops up again and again in the mystical literature, and it's there in the pre-Socratics, and it goes into the Stoics, that this, this concept of cultivating states of awareness that tap into the fundamental nature of reality is the best way to put it. And Plato will talk about the archetypes that exist in perfect form outside of the rational mind. But this is, this is what we're talking about. And there were genuine techniques to arrive there. Do you believe that we need to fully understand the Greeks and their traditions to fully understand the birth of Christianity? Do you think those are mandatory? Yes. Would you go to a rabbi who didn't know Hebrew? Or would you go to an imam who couldn't recite the Quran in Arabic, in classical Arabic? No. I mean, I don't know how of these three religions it became acceptable in Christianity to seek advice from somebody who couldn't quote the New Testament in Greek. Um, because when you read the Greek, it's very, very different. I'm not, I'm not just being wonky about this. I mean, like the Gospel of John, which I spend so much time writing about in the book based on other scholars, again, nothing original to me, uh, but, but quoting other New Testament scholars like Dennis MacDonald, who writes a great book, The Dionysian Gospel, 
Um, when you approach that text with the eyes of someone who would have approached it in the first, second centuries AD, you see different language. You see weird things and you see throwbacks to the pagan world and you see symbols and allusions and allegories that would have made sense to them, but are literally lost in translation to us. So yeah, I say it is impossible to understand the birth of Christianity, the development of Christianity, the mission of Jesus, Jesus, in Greek, without understanding the world into which it was born. I mean, it starts in the Holy Land, but it, it gains a foothold where? In Rome, in southern Italy, Magna Graecia, Great Greece, the place where the Greek influence was at its peak, in mainland Greece, in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey, and all these Greek-speaking communities. I mean, this, this is where Christianity really puts down, puts down roots. And so if, if you don't understand why that would have been attractive to somebody in Corinth, by the way, an hour west of Eleusis, where they were drinking this magic potion, um, and who may themselves have been initiated into these ancient Greek mysteries, then I think, I think you're missing the point. Earlier, we talked about the one piece of evidence, that smoking gun with the ergot. But I wanted to ask on the total flip side, what was the most discouraging moment on this 12-year journey? What was a moment that you thought you had something and the door shut? or you thought you found something and they told you no, uh, what, what was a really hard moment in this process that you dealt with? Because I'm sure it wasn't all victories. No, there's, uh, I mean, you get 99 failures for every one victory, uh, which tells you about the discouraging nature of this stuff. Um, I mean, the biggest door slamming, which forced me into that hunt for the ergotized potion in Spain was, I mean, I had to fly to Eleusis. I mean, you can't write this and not, spend time in Eleusis. So I went to Eleusis, to this ancient spiritual capital, uh, the epicenter of this controversial theory. And I walked the site with uh, the government archeologist who's been there uh, for a significant amount of time, knows more about that site and its history than probably anybody on the planet, Papi Papangeli. Uh, we had a really spirited chat about this, this theory, and she knows all about it. Um, she actually did the modern Greek translation of this, uh, this uh, heretical book from 1978. So she knows the ins and outs of all this stuff and she's proudly unconvinced. And so that was a big door slammed shut. But then despite that, you know, I asked her, um, given archeochemistry, all the science, can we just test some of it? Why can't we just test some of this stuff? There's, there's dozens of chalices and containers sitting in the museum in Eleusis and even more sitting in storage. And I, and I asked her, why don't we just test some of this stuff? And she said, well, it's, they've all been treated. We can't because any organic data that may have been in there from 2,500 years ago, 3,000 years ago, who knows? It's all been disappeared. And I said, come on, that, that can't possibly be true. They, they excavated every single container that was ever drunk on site here for 2,000 years. And her answer was basically yes. Um, and there, so it's like Eleusis itself, which I, I think, I still think, is like the repository of all this magic wound up being a total dead end for the hypothesis. And that's what forced me to take like a big, deep breath and look elsewhere for all this data. As you got to know her, did she ever mention why she was proudly unconvinced, as you mentioned? Um, I, w I won't speak for her, but I, I quote her in the book saying something like, I think um, maybe it's the bias of like a post-psychedelic 60s culture where we find it difficult to believe and maybe she's right. We find it difficult to believe that the ancient Greeks could have, and I don't like this word, but could, could have naturally entered into these states of awareness, whatever that means. Um, and I've, I've heard the same from other classicists. Fritz Groff, 
uh, this really eminent um, scholar who I quote in the book. I mean, there, but there's something to that. And, you know, and it's a conversation worth having because, like, you didn't just show up in Eleusis. Um, uh, it has everything to do with how you prepare for that experience. And so they're right in that you made a long march, a 13-mile, you know, parade, pilgrimage from Athens to Eleusis. You were tired and you were hungry and you were thirsty. And so you're already in this state where I think that you've been prepared for the mystical to take place. Now, my thinking is you, you add a little pinch of psychedelic on top of that and you have all the makings for a really dynamic experience, right? One that would call to initiates every fall for 2000 years. Um, I, think, I think it's probably a mix of all this, but what I think what we agree on is that the set and the setting matters and the, the ritual elements of what was happening there um, are probably even more important than this than this magic potion. And in fact, the results that we see today in modern day volunteers, I think, are a result in the clinical setting of this of this really pristine protocol that the clinicians at Hopkins have put together. I mean, they screen these folks because psychedelics are not for everybody, um, and they make sure that there's there's trust, and they make sure that there's obviously a pure substance. But it's 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 more and more, I think, about generating the container for the irrational to take place. And that's not easy to do. Let's start uh, wrapping up on what's next. We talked about how your book is now a bestseller, how so many people have been captivated by your talks, your interviews, and of course, the actual book. But I assume for mainstream accessibility, whether it's a docu-series or a movie or something visual for the average person, um, is that coming next is that a goal for you guys it's it, we're working diligently it's a it's it's a work in progress uh we're out there talking about this potential docuseries um to all the people who need to hear about it and, and all the folks that are probably familiar to you so we will hopefully have some have some news soon all right the last question i have is you know you were working for 12 years on this book you were doing it because you loved it. You weren't sure if it was ever going to pay off culturally, financially, anything. You just loved it. At what moment do you say, okay, this was, this was totally worth it? Was it the process that you enjoyed? Was it a big moment, a big interview, hitting the bestseller list? What was the moment where you said, or you, you looked at your family and said, hey, this, this was worth it. This was a wild ride, but what we did here was good work. Hmm. I'm still, I'm still waiting for that moment. <laughs> um, it's something I think about all the time. I get this is going to sound weird. Um, it was always worth it. It was always worth it. Um, you know, the, the ability to follow your bliss. And I, and I guess, you know, like, like having, having a job um, that allowed me to do that and to buy books on nights and weekends made this always worth it. And the love and support of my wife, who's down the hall here, um, always, always made it worth it, you know, and, and being able to share some of these stories with my daughters when I put them to bed at night, we, we tell stories about the ancient Greeks. Um, that, that, that to me is, is all worth it. Um, keeping these traditions alive, to me, is worth it. If, if I'm pointing to one thing, it's, it's those emails or those comments that I get from people who know nothing about history or know nothing about the classics or Greek and Latin. And it's not like just a few, it's been, you know, quite a lot of people have reached out to me saying, how do I learn ancient Greek? And I forward those emails along, by the way, to the faculty at Harvard. 
and I say, listen, this is, you know, this is, um, this tradition means something. There are genuine secrets and mysteries out there. And that's always how I felt about the classics. It wasn't just um, like a pastime. It wasn't just something I went into class to do. I mean, every time I, I, I open a book, uh, I'm always thinking, you know, there's, there's a secret here. There, there's a genuine mystery. There are things we haven't discovered. And so like, even right now, it's, it's all worth it, man. What the hell else are we doing here? To celebrate the new podcast, I'm giving away a PlayStation 5 to one of my viewers. All you have to do is like and subscribe. That's it. Full details in the comments. Good luck.